0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen. Is a new Ottoman Empire about to rise in Malaysia? The answer later in the show. Now, if I mention the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you probably think of agents chasing mob bosses or, in earlier times, Ku Klux Klansmen or Soviet spies. But according to documents turned over to the US House of Representatives, the FBI has been spying on Catholics who sing the Mass in Latin. Ed Condon is publisher of the Catholic journal The Pillar. He's been following the story.
2: A field office for the FBI in Virginia had initiated an investigation and was promoting the idea of further commitment to investigating so-called traditionalist Catholic communities. Now, as you might expect, federal law enforcement has a pretty slippery grasp of what the definition of a traditionalist Catholic or a traditionalist Catholic community might be. But it seems to be people who favor, for example, mass in Latin, or have a lot of children, or things like that, or or might tend to take what the author of this memo considered to be too active an interest in church teaching. Initially, the FBI sought to downplay this and said this was the actions of one rogue agent in one field office in Virginia, and there was nothing really to see here. But in more recent submissions to the committee, we've learned that actually this fellow was in communication with several other field offices around the country, that some efforts had been made in places like California to make the next steps in an investigation into this to try and embed people in the community to cultivate what they call human intelligence resources and things like that. So it does look like there was some effort to start spying on people who the government, or at least some agents of the government, thought were just too Catholic.
1: Let's just get this straight, Ed. Did you say that it looks like there were attempts to plant spies in church congregations?
2: That seems to be where they were going with this, yes, and it recommended making approaches to church authorities to develop contacts with them as a sort of sideways, what they called tripwire mechanism. You know, basically, as near as I can parse the law enforcement language of the memo, seemed to suggest we should ask their bishops and priests if they'd consider keeping an eye on their congregations and reporting to us if they thought anyone was getting a little bit too traddy, maybe.
1: I know that if you go back 30 years in the FBI history, there was surveillance of groups like the Branch Davidians, probably with good reason. As it turned out, it came to an extremely tragic and violent end. But why would they be concerned about groups of Catholics who simply favour traditional teaching?
2: The documents that the fbi have handed over including the memo setting out the rationale for all of this aren't entirely clear and in fact they're rather internally incoherent they identify so-called traditionalist catholic communities as likely hotbeds of white supremacy even though they note in the document that actually racism and anti-immigrant sentiment and so-called white supremacy is against catholic doctrine and so if these people really are deeply committed Catholics. They couldn't possibly be racists, but they do flag other concerns, such as that they might be likely to be opposed to transgenderism, or they might be homophobic or opposed to, as the memo puts it, LGBTQI plus groups and individuals. I wouldn't want to suggest they're on firm ground, but it's true that church teaching takes a point of view on issues of human sexuality and gender issues that are at odds with the sort of prevailing cultural norms. But the suggestion that that means that Catholics are therefore criminally suspect, I think, is something that most people would recoil from.
1: And it should be said that that church teaching is the church teaching adhered to by Pope Francis. He speaks in language that is a lot gentler, but it is still the same church teaching to which he adheres. Uh, Does that make Pope Francis suspicious in the eyes of the FBI?
2: Well, you have to imagine it would. I mean, you say he says it in a much gentler language, and it depends really on what aspect of church teaching he talks about. Pope Francis is, as I think the church globally is, and certainly the church in the United States is under the U.S. Catholic bishops, unapologetically pro-immigrant and pro-refugee and everything like that. But Pope Francis has absolutely no truck with what he calls gender ideology, which uh, he considers to be a dangerous pseudoscience that's being inflicted on children. Now, people can have their own discussions about whether or not They think that's the right way to speak about these things, but that is how the Pope's talking about them. And so if the Pope is guilty of thought crime, so are more than a billion Catholics worldwide, presumably.
1: Ed, you've been using the term traditionalist Catholics, traditionalist. Is there a difference at all between a traditionalist Catholic and a traditional Catholic? Is it a distinction without difference or is there something there?
2: Well, I think if you just parse, there isn't a difference, but traditionalist Catholic tends to be a word or phrase that gets invoked to describe people who, of all things, tend to have their own liturgical preferences rather than ideological preferences. When people speak of traditionalist communities, they tend to mean they favor, you know, a sort of pre-1970s version of the Mass. They like things in Latin. They like the priest facing east rather than towards the assembly and that sort of thing. The Catholic Church has its own lively and at times very lively debate about liturgical reforms. But the idea that this somehow spills over into a threat of ideology against the civil state, I think, is quite ridiculous, but shows uh, the level of religious ignorance that is often at play when we're talking about law enforcement and government officials. Mm.
1: To be fair, is there the slightest prospect, though, that some so-called traditionalist Catholics may be prey to infiltration by white nationalist elements? They may become recruiting grounds.
2: Really, what we're seeing is not so much that these communities are at risk of infiltration, but as with almost any community, religious or otherwise, there are members who are going to have some pretty unsavory political ideas. Catholics in the United States, there are several tens of millions of them. There are no exception to this rule, and certainly in the run-up to and fallout from the last presidential election, we saw, obviously, all sorts of terrible behavior and demonstrations that culminated in the riots on Capitol Hill on January 6th. And there were Catholics there among them, and there were, what I think it's pretty fair to say, lunatic fringe extremist voices on YouTube and things like that who tried to cultivate a, a sort of Catholic audience who were also present in supportive of that sort of behavior. But their key identifier there wasn't so much that they were Catholic, it's that they were part of this wider sort of fever swamp of ideas going on at the time of QAnon and online conspiracy theories and things. You know, In that sense, the QAnon movement that culminated in the riots on Capitol Hill, in a perverse way, was one of the most successful ecumenical movements the U.S. has ever seen. It had Catholics, it had Protestants, it had atheists, it had all sorts. It had pagans. It did. It certainly did have (laughs) pagans. And it had some pretty bona fide white supremacists and things in there. But as the FBI's own, now turned over to the House Judiciary Committee documents, say, well, actually, Catholic teaching and so traditional or traditionalist, however you want to term them, Catholics don't go in for that sort of thing. They tend to take a pretty allergic stance to things like paganism and neo-Norse uh, symbolism and vocabulary that comes along with the white supremacist fringe in the in the united states politics so again even the fbi's own rationale for this sort of thing seems to be very very confused
1: i'm not sure entirely of the situation in the us but in australia i think you might find it hard to classify traditional catholics as white nationalists especially given that um quite a few of their priests are, are of south asian background i mean are these traditional communities white communities uh, in essence or not
2: No more than they would be reflective of the demographics of wherever they happen to be. And I think Catholic communities tend to reflect to the wider demographics of the city or state that they're drawn from. So if you go somewhere that is, you know, extremely rural and somewhere like Montana, I suppose from the outside they might look terribly white, but a community with exactly the same preferences and values and ways of worship that you find in, I don't know, Miami or New York or California would look very different demographically, but not feel very different from a Catholic perspective.
1: Ed Condon of The Pillar. Wedged between Russia and China, the ancient land of Mongolia is one of the world's oldest civilizations. It also has one of the smallest Catholic populations, just 1,500 people. But Pope Francis is in Mongolia this week for his 43rd foreign visit since taking office in 2013. But why is he going? Professor Christine Nabam warren is an expert in Catholicism at the University of Iowa, and she wrote about the visit for The Conversation.
3: I think a lot of folks are scratching their heads. And I think that this journey of his, this apostolic visit that he's undergoing right now in Mongolia, really speaks loudly to his priorities. For this pope, the numbers don't matter so much as the people. And even though there are fewer than 1,500 Catholics— This is really, I would say, a deeply symbolic journey. He's a pope who's really focused on his own brand of liberation theology, which has a preferential option for the poor. Mongolia has had high rates of poverty. There's a lot of mining there, some environmental degradation that's starting to happen. So I think this pope is really making a bold statement that people matter and the numbers don't matter as much.
1: Mm -hmm. Mongolia is wedged, by the way, between China, which is an officially atheist country, and Russia. During the Cold War, it was part of the sphere of influence of the old Soviet Union, which was also officially atheist. Am Mm -hmm. I right to assume, Christy, that for much of the past 70 or 80 years, there hasn't been much religion in Mongolia at all?
3: It's fairly easy for us to assume that there hasn't been any because of sort of the atheist sort of border countries. But, I mean, as a scholar of religion, what I find so interesting is that there's always religion on the ground. What scholars we call religion, others might call it spirituality, but, you know, there's sort of an indigenous shamanistic beliefs. There's centuries-old Nestorianism that dates back to the 5th century CE, 4th and 5th century CE. So I think religion's always been there. It's just been more practice in homes, underground, maybe not sort of publicly professed and practiced. But most certainly, I think just in about most places in the world, religion's always existed. And, and in regimes and close to regimes that are officially atheistic, People always find a way to practice their beliefs. And so I think that this also has happened in Mongolia. We've also seen this in China. You know, the Catholic Church has really been growing in China over the last 15 years. And it's now above ground. It's no longer below ground. So I think that we did see religion. We have seen it, but not as public as we've seen it in the last, I'd say, 40, 50 years.
1: I think if there has been a flowering of religion since the end of the Cold War, isn't it the growth of Buddhism there? I think that it remains yes. the single biggest religion.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's Tibetan Buddhism. And, you know, there have been some recent articles out that Tibetan Buddhists are a bit worried about the spread of Catholicism. what what they're not worried about, though, is this Pope because he's shown that he wants to engage in ecumenical dialogue and interfaith dialogue. So we think that because it's this Pope going now, I think he's seen as less of a threat because his way of evangelizing and missionizing is certainly not the way that we've seen historically of previous Popes and previous leaders. I mean, he very much wants to engage in interfaith dialogue, and he doesn't necessarily want Tibetan Buddhism to go away or to adapt to Catholic ways. So I think that that's where he's also pretty distinctive from other post-Vatican II popes.
1: And aren't there supposed to be a number of interfaith events on this trip to Mongolia?
3: Yes, there are going to be events. There's going to be like a center for women who are victims of domestic violence and children. There's going to be a food pantry open. That's where this joint Buddhist Catholic Christian venture. There's also, we've seen a rise in evangelical Christianity as well. So I think what this Pope is really wanting to do now is make a statement that every single person matters, every single person is somebody. There's not a large numeric presence, but he really wants to work with other religious leaders and religious people. A lot of journalists and scholars are saying that they wouldn't be surprised if he does have a visit to China next. So,
1: Before we get to China, by the way, even though we've been yes. focusing on the fact that uh, there's fewer than 1,500 Catholics in Mongolia, Catholicism though in Mongolia, according to your piece, does actually reach back quite a long time. How?
3: It does. I think there's a direct link with Nestorian theology. It's an Eastern branch of Christianity. And so I think that the Christian presence in Mongolia from the fourth century to very recently has been more Nestorianism, which I think, you know, Mary was a big part of this Eastern branch, Jesus. There are differences theologically between Roman Catholicism and Nestorianism, but because they're so similar and they both see Mary as worthy of veneration, Mary is a very big figure in both of these religions. That's enabled Roman Catholicism to adapt and to adapt well. And there has been um, a cardinal in the capital of Mongolia now for several years, and it's been growing under his watch. So it'll be interesting to see how this pope's talk of interfaith, how he values it, how that's going to actually work on the ground.
1: Christy, what is the political implication of the Pope going to a country, as I say, wedged between Russia and China, particularly, for example, China, because that's where a lot of the Vatican effort is focused in recent years. There's a political implication of this visitor, I'm suspecting.
3: Yes, when we study religious history, we always have to look at political history, and also oftentimes they're intertwined, right? I mean, the Roman Catholic Church for many years, you know, was cross and crown. This is strategic on his part, and I don't mean that in a negative way, you know, but I think that. Any leader has to be strategic in their visits, and he's an aging pope. He's being very strategic in where he goes, how long he stays. The Roman Catholic Church has been growing in China. I know my family and I visited back in 2015. I gave a paper there at a conference, as did my spouse. It was a History of Christianity conference, and I was blown away by the growth of Roman Catholicism there. We actually visited a church and sort of sat through Mass. But it's really interesting to see how— in a quote-unquote communist nation country, how Christianity has really been growing and how it's very public. I suspect that China would be the most natural next step. And there have been the relationship between the Mongolian leader and the Chinese leader have really improved over the years. And the mining has actually cemented that political engagement as well, because there are two direct railroad lines from Mongolia to China. And so there are economic ties there that I think the Pope is interested in, too. Yeah,
1: well, I'm very glad you mentioned that issue of mining in Mongolia. How does that fit in with the Pope's broader agenda about the environment, for example?
3: Yes. The United States and China have both made pretty significant investments in Mongolia's mining industry. And China is a major importer of Mongolian coal. This is where the rub is, right? Mining is very detrimental. It's very damaging to the environment, waterways, land, and air, underground, as well as mountaintop removal. This is underground mining. And so it'll be a really interesting... Test for the Pope because he's all about people's liberation, liberation theology. But as we know from recent encyclicals, he's also about protecting the environment and seeing humans' relationships with the environment and non human animals as deeply intertwined. He's going to have to walk an interesting line. But we also know this Pope is very outspoken. He's been outspoken in the Democratic Republic of the Congo about the mining industry there and how it's destroyed the environment and also destroyed lives. And, you know, I quote this in my piece where he's got really vivid quotes about, you know, blood diamonds and the blood of people. I'm anticipating that he may be making some really strong statements. Good for the economy, but you have to protect the environment and the people.
1: Christine Abum warren of the University of Iowa, she also wrote a fascinating book recently about the vibrant religious life in, of all places, America's abattoirs and meatworks. And we discuss Christy's book in a web and podcast extra, which you can find at our website or at ABC Listen. Finally, the long-time strongman of Malaysia, Dr. Mahatia Muhammad, once likened the pan-Malaysian Islamic Party to the Taliban. Now it's centre stage, leading a coalition that did very well in recent state elections. It's also using images from Islam's glorious past to build its popularity. Dr. Amrita Mali is a researcher at Flinders and Australian National University.
0: There's always been this alternative form of Malay politics that has, I guess, prioritized religiosity and Islamic critique of that developmentalism. So past has always led in that sphere. And I think the difference now is that because UMNO is no longer the main party, The last few years have opened up the competition between the two forms of politics, so it's much more open, much more visible, and I think that's really the key.
1: When we refer to UMNO, we're talking about the old uh, United Malay organisation, which was the ruling party for so long, but there's two sort of main political coalitions. There's Pakatan, which is headed by the current Prime Minister, Anwar Ibrahim, and uh, I think Mm. it's Perikatan, which is headed by the former Prime Minister, Yassin. Are these two blocks, are we talking here secular versus religious, left or right...
0: Ultimately, neither group is really secular, and neither group is really left-wing. I mean, The reality is there is no left to speak of. The Malayan emergency of the 1950s actually banned all left-wing parties and scattered the Malay left in all directions. So, PAS actually was once a home for part of that left, and it actually accommodated a kind of a left-wing Islamism until the late 1960s, which is when it was basically purged of these elements. Now, this purging was in line with a Cold War argument that Islam and communism are incompatible. This argument actually reorganized Cold War politics around the Muslim world, so the two ways of seeing the world became counterposed. As for the Pakatan coalition. Well, it's now risen to national power as a multiracial grouping that's hoping to repair the economy and restart economic growth along the lines of the capitalist model that we're familiar with. So it's not really left-wing. Rather, it seems that Pakistan is hoping to attract new investment, build new industries, um, so that the successful development model that Malaysia was known for through the 1990s especially – can be updated and be revived so that it meets today's challenges. It's not exactly secular either. You know, it knows it needs to accommodate and win over sections of Malaysia's Islamist voter base. Uh, So it's not going to de-Islamize political life because it fears a backlash that it might not be able to handle
3: you've
1: referred here to pas the uh, and we mentioned it in the introduction the pan malaysian islamic party this organization yeah. uh, as i recall not so long ago pas was not at the absolute fringe of malaysian politics but it certainly wasn't you know front and center like it is now i know it's not in power but how has pas moved from the edge of the political system where i think it only ran one or two states to being the rival for government, or at least the leader of the coalition that's the rival for government.
0: Well, essentially, it's been really smart with its strategy and tactics. So, yes, it was once on the fringe, especially during the 1990s, you know, that heyday of developmentalism with their critique of pro-market capitalist development was was really on the fringes. It was easy for UMNO, under Mahathir especially, to cast past a sort of backward as anti-modern as opposed to prosperity and tolerance. In fact, he used to call past Malaysia's Taliban and this tactic was actually effective back then. Since that time, though, you know, Pas has just worked really hard to destabilize Umno, so it's been part of the Pakatan coalition for a time, and more recently, it's changed positions, so it's now competing with Pakatan so that it can find a route to federal power. And in fact, it's actually been in a short-lived federal government just recently. So after the first Pakatan government, which formed after a dramatic election in 2018, after it ultimately collapsed in 2020, that collapse actually delivered government to Purikatan, of which passes the main party or the largest party anyway. And so it was in government until the last federal election in 2022, which Pakatan won. And it's also recently tried to use a cluster of six state elections to try to topple Pakistan state governments, and by doing that it's been hoping to, you know, to trigger a new crisis in the federal government so that it collapses again.
1: Yeah, You mentioned there that uh, Dr. Mahathir, the long-time dominant figure in Malaysian politics, the grandee of mm. Malaysian politics, used to refer to Pass as the Taliban. That implies that it had a violent tendency, as devout or as pious as Pass was. Was that ever a fair critique, by the way, to a Equate it with the Taliban?
0: It was a smart critique, put it that way, because it used to be effective in casting PASS as potentially violent, I suppose, but ultimately opposed to development and opposed to the growth that was delivering Malaysians improved living standards. And, and so it was delivering those improved living standards to all Malaysians, but ultimately that growth was also allowing UMNO to kind of restructure Malaysian society and the Malaysian economy on a kind of ethno-nationalist basis so that there were you know more opportunities given to uh, Malay Muslims to develop a Malay Muslim middle class and that Aspiration to be part of that middle class uh, was exactly what Pass used to critique on on this kind of Islamist basis. So it was very easy for for Umno under my there to basically say, well, don't you like prosperity and don't you like tolerance because that's what we'll deliver? And so Pass used to really be pushed into a corner by that critique, and it was effective for a long time.
1: Yeah, one of the critiques though that Pass used to make of developmentalism, as you say, seemed to be around mm-hmm. corruption. Though, as I recall reading not so long ago, that a lot of Pass politicians literally used to get around in bare feet to show their humility, to show how close they were to the people. Was it really a critique of Malaysia developing or was it a critique of corruption?
0: That's how PAS chose to make its critique. It was along the lines of this developmentalism, this this rise of you know this middle class, this wealth, etc. is shot through with corruption, and so they used to it. One time, yeah, they used to drive beat up cars, um, and they used to you know try to show that they were with the people, and and that was very effective. Including when PAS was actually part of the Pakatan coalition, so effectively we had a coalition there that for some years from about two thousand and eight onwards was quite successful in kind of running multiple different sorts of arguments against the corruption that they were trying to target. So there was a kind of a straightforward one of, you know, corruption is terrible. It, you know, reduces opportunities. It siphons out money from the economy and prevents it from being used for, you know, productive purposes. But then there was also the more pious critique, I suppose, of, you know, corruption is un-Islamic. Corruption is a a blight on a kind of a society that wishes to be more pious. Uh, So actually, Puss was running that latter argument. If
1: pass is not literally violent, and we don't have any evidence that it is, in in a fascinating Mm. piece for Inside Story, you say that in a way it's kind of aesthetically violent because you paint this picture of a group of pass supporters brandishing swords and shields. What has this got to do with the old Ottoman Empire?
0: Uh, well that's that's it's nice that you put it that way aesthetically violent i mean that's that's interesting look ultimately pass is arguing for an islamic state and it's trying to do that i guess through uh, you know electoral means but as it does so it's mobilizing episodes from history to make its argument so a few months ago there was a, a sort of a, a rally i guess or a parade if you like of young lads dressed in robes and carrying swords and scimitars and shields and it raised some concern that perhaps they were mobilizing violently but ultimately, I think they're mobilizing in a metaphorical way. So they're trying to say the Muslim soldiers, I guess, who are trying to now mobilize electorally to topple a government that it argues is un-Islamic. And it's really been working this um, Ottoman theme. So in recent state elections, for example, it portrayed Penang, which is a multiracial state held by Pakatan, as Constantinople. And drawing on that parade and that rally with the swords and things, it uh, characterised itself and its supporters as the Ottomans under Sultan Mehmed II, who actually conquered Constantinople from Byzantium Mm. after laying siege to it for two months. And so with Constantinople then under the Ottomans, Byzantium actually collapsed, allowing the Ottoman Empire to expand into Eastern Europe.
1: I'm absolutely fascinated by the evolution of Anwar Ibrahim himself, the fact that he he spent so long in jail, uh, he now leads Malaysia. But what's been the changing nature of his relationship with Islam? Because as I recall, one of the political arguments used against him by Mahathir was that he was too close to Islamism. How has his Mm. attitude or his relationship to religion changed?
0: That's interesting, too, because, of course, you know, Anwar was an Islamist activist on the university campuses as a student, and he was actually recruited to Anwar. Because Umno wanted to make sure he didn't join us, because he was so vocal and so prominent, and he was you know really leading campus activism, basically for more Islamization of public life. So after his co-option, his recruitment into Umno, he was then on a road to rapid power. So by the late 1990s, he'd risen to finance minister, deputy prime minister. This is all before he was famously sacked, of course, in the late 90s, which led him down the path that he's been on since. He remains religious. He isn't going to stop being religious. And part of the reason, as I mentioned, is his own character and background, but also the other part of it is the way he needs to behave to manage this divide in Malaysian politics. The way he looks to be operating now is to be taking steps not to weaken the grip that religion has on Malaysian public life, but rather to try to channel it into more dialogue uh, and more problem solving so that it's no longer in competition with his agenda.
1: Dr. Amrita Marley of Flinders and the ANU, and there's a link to Amrita's article in Inside Story at our website. That is the show you can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and Isabella Tropiano. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.